Chapter twenty eight B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter twenty eight B. A warm reception. Lee's surrender. Lincoln receives the news. Universal rejoicing. Lincoln's last speech to the public. His feelings and intentions toward the South. His desire for reconciliation. Presently the little party was able to move on. It never struck me, says Admiral Porter, there was any one in that multitude who would injure Mr. Lincoln. It seemed to me that he had an army of supporters there who could and would defend him against all the world. Our progress was very slow. We did not move a mile an hour, and the crowd was still increasing. It was a warm day and the streets were dusty, owing to the immense gathering which covered every part of them, kicking up the dirt. The atmosphere was suffocating, but Mr. Lincoln could be seen plainly by every man, woman, and child, towering head and shoulders above that crowd. He overtopped every man there. He carried his hat in his hand, fanning his face, from which the perspiration was pouring. He looked as if he would have given his presidency for a glass of water. I would have given my commission for half that. Now came another phase in the procession. As we entered the city, every window flew up, from ground to roof, and every one was filled with eager, peering faces, which turned one to another, and seemed to ask, Is this large man, with soft eyes and kind benevolent face, the one who has held up to us the incarnation of wickedness, the destroyer of the South? There was nothing like taunt or defiance in the faces of those who were gazing from the windows or craning their necks from the sidewalks to catch a view of the President. The look of every one was that of eager curiosity, nothing more. In a short time we reached the mansion of Mr. Davis, President of the Confederacy, occupied after the evacuation as the headquarters of General Weitzel and Shepley. There was great cheering going on. Hundreds of civilians, I don't know who they were, assembled at the front of the house to welcome Mr. Lincoln. General Shapley made a speech and gave us a lunch, after which we entered a carriage and visited the State House, the late seat of the Confederate Congress. It was in dreadful disorder, betokening a sudden and unexpected flight. Members' tables were upset. Bales of Confederate scrip were lying about the floor and many official documents of some value were scattered about. After this inspection I urged the President to go on board the Malvern. I began to feel more heavily the responsibility resting upon me through the care of his person. The evening was approaching, and we were in a carriage open on all sides. He was glad to go. He was tired out, and wanted the quiet of the flagship. I was oppressed with uneasiness until we got on board and stood on the deck with the President safe. Then there was not a happier man anywhere than myself. On Sunday, April ninth, the President returned to Washington, and there he heard the thrilling news that Lee, with his whole army, had that day surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. Lincoln's first visit after reaching the capital was to the house of Secretary Seward, who had met with a severe accident during his absence, and was a prisoner in a sick-room. Lincoln's heart was full of joy and he entered immediately upon an account of his visit to Richmond and the glorious success of the Union Army, throwing himself, as Mr. Carpenter says, in his almost boyish, 
exultation, at full length across the bed, supporting his head upon one hand, and in this manner reciting the story of the collapse of the rebellion. Concluding, he lifted himself up, and said, "'And now for a day of thanksgiving!' In Washington, as in every city and town in the loyal states, there was the wildest enthusiasm over the good news from the army. Flags were flying everywhere, cannon were sounding, business was suspended, and the people gave themselves up to the impulses of joy and thanksgiving. Monday afternoon the workmen of the Navy Yard marched to the White House, joining the thousands already there, and with bands playing and a tumult of rejoicing, called persistently for the President. After some delay Lincoln appeared at the window above the main entrance, and was greeted with loud and prolonged cheers and demonstrations of love and respect. He declined to make a formal speech, saying to the excited throng beneath, "'I am very greatly rejoiced that an occasion has occurred so pleasurable that the people can't restrain themselves. I suppose that arrangements are being made for some sort of formal demonstration. Perhaps this evening or to-morrow night. If there should be such a demonstration, I, of course, shall have to respond to it and I shall have nothing to say if I dribble it out before. I see you have a band. I propose now closing up by requesting you to play a certain air or tune. I have always thought Dixie one of the best tunes I ever heard. I have heard that our adversaries over the way have attempted to appropriate it as a national air. I insisted yesterday that we had fairly captured it. I presented the question to the Attorney General and he gave his opinion that it is our lawful prize. I ask the band to give us a good turn upon it. The band did give a good turn not only to Dixie but to the whimsical tune of Yankee Doodle, after which Lincoln proposed three cheers for General Grant and all under his command, and then three more cheers for our gallant Navy, at the close of which he bowed and retired amid the inspiring strains of Hail Columbia, discoursed with vigor by the patriotic musicians. As additional dispatches were received from the army, the joyful excitement in Washington increased. Tuesday evening, April 11th, the President's mansion, the executive departments, and many of the business places and private residences were illuminated, bonfires were kindled, and fireworks were sent off, in celebration of the great event which stirred the hearts of the people. A vast mass of citizens crowded about the White House, as Lincoln appeared at the historic East Window and made his last speech to the American public. It was a somewhat lengthy address, and had been prepared and written out for the occasion. "'We meet this evening not in sorrow, but in gladness of heart,' began the President. "'No part of the honor or praise is mine. To General Grant his skillful officers and brave men all belongs.' Mr. Brooks, who was in the White House during the delivery of this address, gives the following glimpses behind the scenes. As Lincoln spoke, the multitude was as silent as if the courtyard had been deserted. Then, as his speech was written on loose sheets, and the candles placed for him were too low, he took a light in his hand and went on with the reading. Soon coming to the end of a page, he found some difficulty in handling the manuscript and holding the candlestick. A friend who stood behind the drapery of the window reached out and took the candle, and held it until the end of the speech, and the President let the loose pages fall on the floor, 
one by one, as fast as he was through with them. Presently Tad, having refreshed himself at the dinner-table, came back in search of amusement. He gathered up the scattered sheets of the President's speech, and then amused himself by chasing the leaves as they fluttered from the speaker's hand. Growing impatient at his father's delay to drop another page, Tad whispered, "'Come, give me another!' The President made a queer motion with his foot toward the boy, but otherwise showed no sign that he had other thoughts than those which he was dropping to the listeners beneath. Without was a vast sea of upturned faces, each eye fixed on the form of the President. Around the tall white pillars of the portico flowed an undulating surface of human beings, stirred by emotion and lighted with the fantastic colors of fireworks. At the window, his face irradiated with patriotic joy, was the much-beloved Lincoln, reading the speech that was to be his last to the people. Behind him crept back and forth on his hands and knees the boy of the White House, gathering up his father's carefully written pages, and occasionally lifting up his eager face waiting for more. It was before and behind the scenes. Sometimes I wonder, when I recall that night, how much of a father's love and thought of his boy might have been mingled in Lincoln's last speech to the eager multitude. The President's speech on this occasion was largely devoted to the impending problem of Reconstruction in the South. The problem was complex and difficult, with no recognized principles or precedent for guidance. Said Lincoln, Unlike the case of a war between independent nations, there is no authorized organization for us to treat with. No one man has authority to give up the rebellion for any other man. We simply must begin with and mold from disorganized and discordant elements. Nor is it a small additional embarrassment that we, the loyal people, differ amongst ourselves as to the mode, manner, and measure of reconstruction. Let us all join in doing the acts necessary to restoring the proper practical relations between these states and the Union. The problem thus touched upon was one that had long occupied the thoughts of Lincoln, especially since the downfall of the Confederacy had been imminent. His practical and far-seeing mind was already addressing itself to the new issues, duties, and responsibilities which he saw opening before him, and which he well knew would demand all of his wisdom, firmness, and political sagacity. As was to be expected, a great diversity of views prevailed. A powerful faction in Congress, sympathized with by some members of the Cabinet, was for making treason odious, and dealing with the insurgent states as conquered provinces, that had forfeited all rights once held under the Constitution, and were entitled only to such treatment as the government chose to give them. Lincoln's ideas were very different. His mind was occupied with formulating a policy having for its object the welfare of the Southern people and the restoration of the rebellious states to the Union. His broad and statesmanlike views were outlined, the day after the public address just referred to, in discussing Secretary Wells's plan for convening the legislature of Virginia. Says Mr. Wells in his diary, his idea was that the members of the legislature, comprising the prominent and influential men of their respective counties, had better come together and undo their own work. Civil government must be re-established, he said, as soon as possible. There must be courts and law and order, 
or society would be broken up, the disbanded armies would turn into robber bands and guerrillas, which we must strive to prevent. These were the reasons why he wished prominent Virginians, who had the confidence of the people, to come together and turn themselves and their neighbors into good Union men. Lincoln had no thought of leaving any of these questions to the military authorities. In March he had directed a dispatch from Stanton to Grant, saying, The President wishes you to have no conference with General Lee, unless it be for the capitulation of his army, or on some other minor and purely military matter. He instructs me to say that you are not to decide, discuss, or confer upon any political question. Such questions the President holds in his own hands, and will submit them to no military conferences or conventions. During his meeting with Grant at Petersburg, the President revealed to the General many of his plans for the rehabilitation of the South, and it could easily be seen that a spirit of magnanimity was uppermost in his heart. At the conference with Grant, Sherman, and Porter, on board the River Queen, the same subject was broached. Though I cannot attempt to recall the words spoken by any one of the persons present on that occasion, says General Sherman, I know we talked generally about what was to be done when Lee's and Johnston's armies were beaten and dispersed. On this point Mr. Lincoln was very full. He said that he had long thought of it, that he hoped this end could be reached without more bloodshed, but in any event he wanted us to get the men of the southern armies disarmed and back to their homes. That he contemplated no revenge, no harsh measures, but quite the contrary, and that their suffering and hardships during the war would make them the more submissive to law. Says Honorable George Bancroft, It was the nature of Mr. Lincoln to forgive. When hostilities ceased, he who had always sent forth the flag, with every one of its stars in the field, was eager to receive back his returning countrymen. One of the last stories of personal interviews with President Lincoln relates to his feeling of clemency for the men lately in rebellion. It is told by Senator Henderson of Missouri. About the middle of March, 1865, says Senator Henderson, I went to the White House to ask the President to pardon a number of men who had been languishing in Missouri prisons for various offenses, all political. Some of them had been my schoolmates, and their mothers and sisters and sweethearts had persisted in appeals that I should use my influence for their release. Since it was evident to me that the Confederacy was in its last throes, I felt that the pardon of most of these prisoners would do more good than harm. I had separated them, according to the gravity of their offenses, into three classes, and handing the first list to him, I said, Mr. President, the session of the Senate is closed, and I am about to start for home. The war is virtually over. Grant is pretty certain to get Lee and his army, and Sherman is plainly able to take care of Johnston. In my opinion, the best way to prevent guerrilla warfare at the end of organized resistance will be to show clemency to these southern sympathizers lincoln shook his head and said henderson i am deeply indebted to you and i want to show it but don't ask me at this time to pardon rebels i can't do it people are continually blaming me for being too lenient don't encourage such fellows by inducing me to turn loose a lot of men who perhaps ought to be hanged I answered, Mr. President, these prisoners and their friends tell me that for them the war is over, and it will surely have a good influence now to let them go. He replied, Henderson, 
My conscience tells me that I must not do it. But I persisted. Mr. President, you should do it. It is necessary for good feeling in Missouri that these people be released. If I sign this list as a whole, will you be responsible for the future good behavior of these men? he asked. Yes, I replied. I will. Then I'll take the risk. He wrote the word pardoned, signed the order of release, and returned the paper to me. Thank you, Mr. President, I said, but that is not all. I have another list. You're not going to make me let loose another lot, he exclaimed. Yes, I answered, and my argument is the same as before. The guilt of these men is doubtful. Mercy must be the policy of peace. With the only words approaching profanity that I ever heard him utter, he exclaimed, I'll be derned if I don't sign it. Now, Henderson, he said, as he handed me the list, remember that you are responsible to me for these men, and if they don't behave, I'll put you in prison for their sins. Lincoln's whole feeling toward the vanquished Southern people was one of peace and magnanimity. While many were clamoring for the execution of the Southern leaders, and especially Jefferson Davis, Lincoln said only a day or two before his death, this talk about Mr. Davis wearies me. I hope he will mount a fleet horse, reach the shores of the Gulf of Mexico, and ride so far into its waters that we shall never see him again. And then he told me a pat story, perhaps his last, of a boy in Springfield who saved up his money and bought a coon, which after the novelty wore off became a great nuisance. He was one day leading him through the streets, and had his hands full to keep clear of the little vixen, who had torn his clothes half off him. At length he sat down on the curbstone, completely fagged out. A man passing was stopped by the lad's disconsolate appearance, and asked the matter. "'Oh,' was the only reply, "'this coon is such a trouble to me.' "'Why don't you get rid of him, then?' said the gentleman. "'Hush!' said the boy. "'Don't you see he is gnawing his rope off?' I am going to let him do it, and then I will go home and tell the folks that he got away from me." At the last cabinet meeting, ever attended by Lincoln, held in the morning of the day on which he was shot, the subject of Reconstruction was again uppermost, and various plans were presented and discussed. Secretary Stanton brought forward a plan or ordinance which he said he had prepared with much care and after a great deal of reflection. It was arranged that a copy of this should be furnished to each member of the cabinet for criticism and suggestion. In the meantime, says Secretary Wells, we were requested by the President to deliberate and carefully consider the proposition. He remarked that this was the great question now before us, and we must soon begin to act. What that action would have been had Lincoln lived, what wrong and misery would have been spared to the South and shame and dishonor to the North, no one can doubt who comprehends the fiber of that kindly, just, and indomitable soul. End of chapter 28b. Recording by Bill Borst.